We are in Acts 26 today. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we go through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. In the book of Acts, we are in chapter 26. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, or perhaps you don't own a Bible, please grab one from under a seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that one home with you after the service. Acts 26. As we approach the end of the book of Acts, we are looking again at the, at the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. We've discussed and looked in the last couple of chapters about, again, how the religious leaders of the, the Jewish religious leaders bringing these charges against Paul, their desire straight out, and they've made it known, is to have Paul put to death. They want to completely do away with Paul and his ministry. Paul is under Roman guard now. He is a prisoner of Rome physically, but we know, and as we've said and Paul knows, he's not a prisoner of anybody other than the Lord Jesus, and and God is using him in great ways, as we have seen. But to set the stage for where we are today, as we're going to study in chapter 26, Paul is in Caesarea. There's a new sheriff in charge, if you would. There's a new governor, Festus. And King Agrippa has now come, the Jewish King Agrippa has come to pay respects to Festus, to come alongside here and just kind of make some, make some transition in that. And Festus comes to Agrippa and says, you know, I'm confused. This guy, Paul, the, the, the charges that are brought against him they, want him, they want him, they want him executed, but none of the charges that have been brought deserve execution. I'm really puzzled. And we talked last time about the interesting fact that though Festus really didn't have a grasp on all of these things, he did have insight into one thing. It boiled down to one differentiating factor, one major turning point. The Jews said Jesus is a dead man. Paul says he's alive. And that is the difference that this whole thing is based on. Now, that is a, as a backdrop. Now, Agrippa said, I want to hear from him myself. So Festus lines it up. He, he tells us as chapter 25 completes that not only Festus, Bernice, Agrippa are there, but also leading prominent men from the city, uh, military leaders have all gathered in the, this auditorium. And just as a little teaser for you that are going to Israel with us in a few weeks and a little promotion for those for our next trip, this is what, this is actually the place where this took place. This is the actual amphitheater. This would be a view that those sitting up in the crowd would have looking down where Paul would be standing. This would be a view that Paul would have of the people, except they're dressed probably a little differently then. In the middle there, as you can see, that little sectioned off, that place sectioned off, that's where uh, Festus, Agrippa, Bernice would have been sitting as Paul makes his defense. So you can have that as little in your mind's eye as we now read chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they were willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee among the strictest sect of our religion. 
And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Paul now again, he's speaking, there's all of these people listening in, but Paul's zeroing in in his, in his discussion with King Agrippa, the Jewish king. And he's trying to make a point with them, but also in the hearing of all, and Lord willing, next week we're going to see some of the reaction as we finish in chapter 26. But notice he says, you are an expert. You're an expert in the customs and questions. You're an expert in the traditions, but also that word questions literally means controversial issues. Those things that, that, that there are, there's debate about, there's disagreement about. He says, you're an expert in those things. First of all, he talks about Jewish customs, the traditions. And he draws the attention right away. He says, the Jews know this. The religious leaders who are bringing all these charges, they know full well who I am. They know full well my past. Paul, born in Tarsus, but at a young age, moved to Jerusalem. He was taught under one of the top rabbis of that day, Gamaliel. He was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees as he describes himself. And there's some evidence, we'll look at that in a moment, that Paul might have even actually been on the Sanhedrin. And he says, it's interesting, if they were willing to testify about those things, you would know this as well. Paul speaks of his pedigree a little further in Philippians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 4, he says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Paul said, I was a Pharisee of the strictest sect, and when it came right down to it, the letter of the law, no one could bring a charge against me. No one could, could come against me. But bottom line, again, guys, as we talked last week, that's not the problem. That's not the issue. The problem comes when we get to this whole idea of the questions, the controversial issues, and it surrounds what he goes into then in verses 6 through 8 when he's talking about the hope. The hope. He speaks of the hope that the Jewish people have, of the promises that God has given. And guys, it comes right down to that again for us. As believers in the Lord Jesus, we've talked of this numerous times as we've studied through Acts, that we're always to be ready to give a defense, as Paul is giving a defense, for the hope that is within us. And it's so important because the Bible tells us that God has placed eternity in the hearts of everyone. Now, some of those who will say, well, I believe that as soon as we die, we're just done, da-da-da-da, doesn't mean that that has not been placed in their heart. What it means is they have pushed that away. They have denied that. They have hardened their hearts to the truth that God reveals. God desires for all of us to understand that this is not all there is. Anybody else glad about that? This isn't all there is. There is a perfect eternity waiting for those who believe in Jesus. 
and that it's God's desire that none should perish, but all come to repentance and be able to have that gift of eternal life. And Paul says, that's the hope, but the disagreement, the problem comes is, okay, how do we have that assurance? How do we know for certain? And he says in here, the problem is that verse seven, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, they hope to somehow get to a level that they can earn this, and that's the problem. Because they know no matter how hard they try, they can't get there. No matter what they've done, they know it's not enough. And Paul is an expert in this, and we'll talk about this again as we continue to go through this morning. But Paul understood that. Paul blameless when it came to the letter of the law. But Jesus will say to him, it's hard to kick against the goads, Paul. He knew it. He knew it wasn't enough. And they know it. Paul will write in Romans chapter 10, Verses two and three, for I testify about them, the Jewish people, specifically the Jewish leaders, but the Jewish people, I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Therein lies the problem. It's, it's not enough to be zealous for God, to be passionate for God, because passion and zeal can be misguided. Trying to come up with a righteousness of our own, it's impossible. The righteousness of God is the key, and that's what Paul is saying. He has this assurance. He knows, because he was going down that wrong path. He had that zeal. He had that passion. But he understood after Jesus revealed that truth to him and he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior and was clothed in his righteousness, he finally got it. I read to you from Philippians 3, 4 through 6, verse 7, speaking of that, he continues, speaking of that pedigree that he had, he says, but whatever were things were gained to me, those I have counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul said all of that, Included in there, remember, he said, the zeal that I had. The fact that when you held it up to the letter of the law, I was blameless. Those things that we can take pride in. Paul said, I count all of that rubbish, literally a pile of manure, compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All of the righteousness that I have, as the Bible tells us, is but filthy rags. But knowing Christ Jesus, clothed in his righteousness, Paul now has this assurance, and he says, that is what they bring against me. That is the problem. They don't have it. I do. I'm, and I want to tell them about it. I want to share this truth. Paul, he tells us he, he lost everything materially, all the temporal things, the physical things, he walked away from all of that, but he gained everything eternally, spiritually. He continues 
interesting. It's like Paul just can't help but get the gospel in everywhere. <laughs> he he inter even interrupts his opening statements, verses you know, two through five with six through eight, because he jumps back in verse nine to get back to where he started. So then, because of this, this that I had grazed up in the strictest sect and all of this type of stuff, so then I thought to myself, by the way, always a bad idea. I thought to myself, that is, that, that is the beginning of a whole lot of problems. I thought to myself, stop that immediately. God, what would you have? Because notice, I thought to myself that I had to do. That's, therein, again, lies the problem. Guys, it's not about what we do, do, do. It's what he's done, done, done. It's, that's it. I, he said, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, the same chief priests, by the way, that are bringing the charges against them, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. That is what I was speaking of earlier. That's some evidence possibly that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, literally casting a vote to have those put to death that were Christians. And as I punished them, often in all synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, again, same ones, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goad. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, stand to your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to the light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Here we have the third recounting in the book of Acts of Paul's Damascus Road experience where, again, he's on his way to Damascus with letters from the chief priests to arrest Christians, to bring them back to Jerusalem, to face trial and probable execution. On the way, he meets Jesus face to face. Life radically changed trajectory of his life and his eternity completely changed. Again, we look at Paul and how he outlines it in verses 9 through 11, who he was. He was passionate. He had made it his life's mission to wipe out the Christian church at its very inception. Again, not just, to, not just to teach them a lesson, not just to slap them on the hand, but casting his vote against their very lives to have them executed. And I highlight that because as we continue to read, Jesus personally selected Paul for the work that he would do. And that is an enormous lesson that we all need to, need to learn. Guys, 
God can and will use you regardless of what your past contains. Regardless of what has happened in your past, when we become believers, we are a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. And I emphasize that because I know in a room this large, there are many of you who are listening to the lie of the enemy that, said, that he's whispering in your ear, yeah, they, God wants to use the rest of them, but he won't use you because of this or that, because you had this in your past, because you had this in your past. You're disqualified. The lie. Look at, look at Paul. We're going to look at a, another verse here in a moment, but look at what Paul has, has listed here. And I love the lessons that are, that are there in the word of God if we care to look for them. One of them right here. Notice how he describes himself in verse 11. He says, I was furiously enraged. Those are two words in the Greek, by the way. Two words, furiously enraged. Not just upset, not just mad. Furiously enraged. That word furiously literally means exceedingly beyond measure. And enraged means out of my mind. <laughs> describing himself beyond measure, out of his mind, enraged at them. Now, he will write in Romans 5.15, speaking of the grace of God, he says this, but the free gift, of, the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one man Many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. That word abound is the same Greek word translated furiously in our text. The grace of God is beyond all measure. It doesn't matter what you have done in your past. The blood of Jesus can wash that away. Completely and totally. Again, Paul writes in Titus, he writes to Titus, once disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasure. That word various is the same word Peter uses to describe the grace of God when he refers to it as the manifold grace of God. Guys, the blood of Jesus covers it all. Paul received, this is all about the grace of God. Grace, unmerited, undeserved favor. What did Paul deserve on his way to Damascus from Jesus? Be reduced to dust. That's what we all deserve. But God, being rich in mercy, extending his grace. Paul will use the word grace over 120 times in his letters. Grace. Jesus meets Paul right where he was, furiously enraged, and meets him with grace. He asks him first a question, why are you persecuting me? Paul had no idea. He didn't understand the, what, what he was doing. He was out of his mind, furiously enraged. He did not understand that this was a direct assault against the true and living God. And we're going to see again as we continue this morning, the world is still blinded to those things, not understanding 
But once it was revealed to him in a way that he was unavoidable, notice Jesus follows his question with a statement. Hard to kick against the goat. It's, it's hard, Paul. I understand it's hard. It's hard to resist the Holy Spirit as you have been. If he wasn't before, he certainly at the stoning of Stephen started kicking against the goads. That, that word that's used there, that's, it's, it's talking about how you prod along with a sharp stick an ox as you want it to go one way or the other. You know, and kicking against the goads is to continue to go the wrong direction and keep getting poked. Jesus saying, Paul, you're one stubborn ox. And it's hard, isn't it? But I love this. Again, Jesus immediately, immediately commissions him and puts him to work. He says, but get up. Don't wallow there. Get up. You have work to do. I'm calling you to be a minister and a witness. A minister, an assistant, a co-laborer, and a witness to tell the world. Notice he says, of the things you've seen and the things you will see. The things that you understand right now at this moment, you tell. And he does, every opportunity he tells. But also those things, those truths that will continually be revealed to you. And guys, the same is true for us. Once we are saved, once we are redeemed, once we are born again, we have this same commission to go and tell what we have seen, what we have experienced, what God has done in our lives, and also those things that we learn as we continue to pray, we continue to seek the Lord, as we continue to study his word. There is one difference that I'm very happy about when it comes to Paul's commission and mine and more than likely yours. Back in Acts chapter 9, when we first have the actual account of this happening, Paul, or the Lord appeared to a man named Ananias and told him that, that Paul would be coming to him. And Jesus said, I will show him. I'll show Paul all the things that he must suffer for my name's sake. I am so glad he doesn't do that with me. I don't know about you, but there's been a whole lot of things that have been a part of my walk with the Lord that if I'd have known those were coming, I might have said, hey, you know what? I'm going to go a different way. But he's so faithful because when we get there, he gives us what we need to get through it. But it says, I will show him all the things that he must suffer. And Paul, even knowing all of those, followed passionately after the Lord Jesus. Verse 2 says something interesting to me that we, may, we just kind of glossed over, and it's easy to gloss over. Paul, remember, Paul is standing before Agrippa in chains, a prisoner of Rome. When it says he raised his hand, he probably had to raise both because they're chained together and probably could only get it this high because they're chained to his feet. And notice what it says. I consider myself Fortunate. I consider myself fortunate to be here, King Agrippa. Let me just ask you straight out, how many of you would consider that fortunate? When we're sitting here and things could be done. I remind you, Paul could have retired in Philippi. Nice little condo on the beach. Nobody would have blamed him. He said, I consider myself fortunate. How could Paul consider himself fortunate? Well, I want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy. 
First Timothy chapter one. Because right here is the answer to the question as to how Paul could have possibly considered himself fortunate. First Timothy chapter one, beginning in verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. If you're a note taker, underline that in your Bible. It's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament, and it is used to speak of God's grace. More than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy. So that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Why does Paul consider himself fortunate? Verse 12 tells us because Jesus considered him faithful. Again, what did Paul deserve? Yet God rescued him. He saved him. He gave him a new life and that he put him into service for the eternal kingdom of God. And Paul said, I deserve none of this. Yet here I am. How do you consider yourself? How do you consider your current situation? Do you say, God, I don't deserve this? Or is it, God, I don't deserve this? Regardless of our situation, if you are a born-again believer today, consider yourself fortunate. Regardless of where God has you, because he wants to use you in that. I don't know about you, but I'd like to argue with Paul about one thing because I'm the foremost sinner that was rescued by God's grace. He's considered me fortunate or considered me faithful to put me into service. And every time I find myself complaining about whatever situation I might be in, I, I want to be reminded of this. I just, just an amazing truth that Paul gives to us here. Well, he puts us into service, but he also promises to help us as we go through it. Notice he says, I will rescue you. I will be with you. I am sending you. I will be with you every step of the way. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that keeps us. It's the same grace that protects us. It's the same grace that follows us everywhere we go as believers. Notice the commission. Notice what he is called to do. And again, this is the same thing for us. To open their eyes. How do do we do that? Well, the same way. Jesus told him, tell him what you saw. Tell him what you're going to see. Same with us. 
That's all we're called to do. That is our responsibility. Tell them what Jesus has done for us. Tell us, tell the, the truth of God's word, all of it. Love people enough to tell them the truth, the whole truth. Open their eyes. Notice, so that, that would make it possible for them to turn from darkness and turn to the light, to turn from the power and the authority of Satan to God. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are, note, perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, or the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We can never lose sight of the fact of this, guys. As we are out doing this, following God's command for us, we can't ever lose sight of their condition. They're blind. They have been blinded, note, by the God of this world to believe other things, to believe the lies that are everywhere. And we were once blind too. But by God's grace, we can now see. And because we can see, we can now lead those who are blind into that position where they can see so that they can turn. If you are here today and you have never taken that step of turning, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you've never trusted in him and him alone for your salvation. Or perhaps you're... You're stuck in some area of sin in your life. We need to understand something here that's revealed to us in the text. There today currently are two kingdoms. And by the way, you are not king or queen of either one of them. There was once one kingdom, and praise the Lord, there will one day again be only one kingdom. But right now, we know, the Bible reveals this to us, God entrusted man with power over the earth, but we surrendered that through sin to Satan. And he is a liar, a deceiver, and he has convinced the world that does not know Jesus, that is walking in darkness, that you can be the king of your own world. You make your own choices. It's your body. Do whatever you want. It's your life. Live it however you want. Make, make your own choice. You are your own king. Problem is, that's a lie. It's an outright lie. He'll tell you, the enemy will tell you, the world will try to convince you that you can find happiness in, in drugs, in money, in alcohol, in sex, and all of these other things. But that's all a lie. If you could find true happiness in money, the Hollywood elite would be the happiest people in the world. And you don't have to check out at too many grocery stores to know that's not true. <laughs> if alcohol was the key to happiness, alcoholics would be the happiest people on the planet. If drugs were that avenue, heroin addicts would be the happiest people on the planet. If having sex with whoever you wanted and however you wanted, whatever lifestyle you choose was the happiness, prostitutes, porn stars, they'd be the happiest people on the planet. But the problem is, they're so miserable, they're running after drugs and alcohol to try to drown their sorrows. It's all a lie. Money, 
great servant, horrible master. All of these things, it's all a lie. You're not in control of any of that. You're in bondage to that. You're in bondage to the lie. And if, you're, if, if you find yourself in any aspect in that this morning, there is one master who you should turn to, the one who gave his life for you. You follow after him, you will never regret one moment of it. I can testify to that. Not one moment. Tells us that we as Christians, those who are born again today, we need to tell the truth so that they can turn. So that they can see. And then that gives them the opportunity to receive. To receive forgiveness of their sins. You're here today. You've never done that. You can have your sins forgiven today. Everyone. Past, present, future. You might say, yeah, yeah, pastor, I, I hear what you're saying. I've heard this all before, but you don't know my past. You're right. I don't know my, your past. I don't have any idea. But Jesus knew you and everything you did when he willingly went to the cross and said, it is finished. Paid in full. He took it all. He did that willingly for you. And not just to have our sins forgiven. That would be enough. But it goes on to say, and the inheritance that is ours. The inheritance that awaits us in heaven. As Peter describes, imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. Who, by the way, are kept by the power of God. If you've never made that decision, I want to invite you to today. I'm going to have the worship team come up in a moment. We're going to sing a couple of songs as we close. I would like to ask two things. For everybody else in here, born-again believers today, would you please stay? Two songs. Worship with us. I'd ask that you don't leave because I want to invite anyone who is here today who would like to give their life to the Lord to know your sins are washed away, to know that you are forgiven, to know that you have eternal life. I would like to ask you to come up front. We're going to have, we'll have the lights down. We're going to have pastors and elders up front. We want to have this opportunity to pray with you. You might be thinking right now, there's no way I'm going to go up. What will people think? What are they going to say? What are they going to, you know what? I'm going to speak boldly that we're going to rejoice if you come forward today because we've all been there. None of us are in a situation that you're not in. And if there is anybody who would have a judgmental heart at all saying, oh, look at that, you need to follow them up here. <laughs> and I know the enemy right now is saying, no, 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 not you, not you. <laughs> Maybe some others, but no way you. Yes, you. Listen to the Holy Spirit prompting in your heart. If you don't want to do this alone, you don't have to. Ask, ask the people sitting next to you to come up with you. If, even if you don't know them, just ask them. I know they'll be, they would love to come up with you and pray with you up front. I want to give that invitation to anybody here today. If you've walked away from the Lord and you want to rededicate your life, please come up during this time as well. The rest of us, let's worship him who has redeemed us, who has given us this incredible gift. None of us deserve. Maybe God's even working in your heart about some complaining you've been doing and some different things. 
let's, let's rejoice that he considered us faithful, that he's put us into service. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. We thank you for who you are, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who willingly stepped off your throne in heaven to take our place, to live a perfect, sinless life, to die on the cross in our place in exchange for us. Lord, every one of us in this room at one point in our lives were slaves to sin. but We've been set free. We're no longer slaves. We're, we're children of God. That we know that we have eternal life. We know that there is a great inheritance awaiting us in heaven. But God, nothing compares to just being in your presence forever. You're here today and you don't know that peace. You don't have that assurance. You can today. And as we sing, I'd like to invite you to come forward. Let's worship the Lord together.